there are times I'd like to know uh, what my future holds. You know, there are sometimes I think it's fine just to go along for the ride and see what happens and find enjoyment in it or whatever, but there are also times when it's like, I really want to know how this is going to work out. Uh, and so often, I know we can find ourselves staying awake at night, thinking about different issues that we have or different potential problems that are on the horizon or, or things we might find ourselves in right now. And what we're searching for are answers. What we're searching for is, is for it all to make sense in some way. We, we're wanting clarity. We're wanting sight. And, and so often, just the future is blind to us. I mean, always the future is blind to it and, and there's, and we're blind to it. And, and so often that can be one of the greatest sources is of anxiety and stress in our lives is the unknown that lies before us. Um, we can plan, we can strategize, we can have everything that we hope goes a certain way. And then there could be something from out of nowhere that just completely derails everything that we thought we had planned. There are a lot of examples of that in the Bible. I think, and we'll talk about him in the lesson this morning because we're going through Acts, but I think Paul's life is one of, those, uh, one of those examples where he had a clear path and trajectory. He knew what he was about, and then his life got completely flipped and turned upside down by something crazy that happened to him on the road to Damascus that I don't think he would have predicted in a million years. I don't know how he slept the night before that happened, but I doubt he was in bed thinking about what, you know, huge catastrophic event was going to take place in his life tomorrow. Uh, he had no idea of knowing, but it happened. He met someone who not only he had despised and tried to uh, put an end to his following, he also met someone who he truly believed had already been killed and was dead. He saw the risen Lord Jesus. And how do you come back from that? That's a hard thing. In fact, it was such a, an incredible encounter that it radically transformed the whole direction of his life from that point forward. And what I think you can see from that point forward is there is virtually no clear path for Paul. It's like, even when you read his letters, it's interesting how often he'll talk about what his travel plans are, and then when you read through what actually happens in his life, they don't work out. Uh, Paul is, he gets to where he can't predict anything anymore, and it's because his life is constantly being turned left and right, and these unexpected things happen out of nowhere, and the book of Acts is full of that. But that's not something that's unique to Paul. I mean, we can, we can go through a lot of examples of it. Uh, Joseph was going out to see his brothers working in a field one day, and then his life was radically transformed forever. Uh, his brothers, they didn't know what they were going to do with him. They just knew they didn't like him. They were tired of him. They didn't like his dreams. They didn't like that his father showed clear and obvious favoritism towards this one son while ignoring the other ones. And so what they decided to do was get their vengeance. Uh, first, they decided they were going to kill him. Then, uh, you know, they, they, Reuben, I think, convinced them not to do that. So then they decided they were going to throw him in a pit. Um, then they thought, you know what, why just waste the, the money? <laughs> you know, he's, he's worth something as a slave. And they saw a, a, a band of, of, uh, of slave traders. They ended up selling him. He ends up in Egypt. When he was going out to visit his brothers that day, the night before when he was lying in bed, he had no idea what the next day was going to look like. He ends up in Egypt. He ends up as a slave in Potiphar's house. I mean, you could go through the story. He ends up being thrown in jail after that. He ends up in Egypt's household or Pharaoh's household in Egypt. And one of the things that's incredible about that is one of the reasons I'm bringing it up 
is because there are quite a few moments in the Bible where you have people who uh, found themselves unexpectedly, their lives were transformed, and they find themselves standing before a king. Uh, when that happens. I think Moses, for example, is another, uh, is, is another person who, he, his life kind of from the beginning was a wild ride. I mean, he was born in really tumultuous circumstances uh, when Egypt was issuing the, the death of all children, and he fit that category uh, uh, of all Israelite children. And, and so his mother ended up hiding him. She ended up putting him in the Nile. He ended up being found in the household that was seeking to put him to death ended up being the household that raised him. And so he was in a, that's a strange situation for anyone. But he grows up for 40 years. He eventually defends his native people in, in what I suppose he thinks was the best way he could. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, so he killed the Egyptian. And he buried him in the sand, and then news of that got out, and he is, his life was radically transformed again. And he had to go flee. He flees to Midian. He's there living as a shepherd for 40 years. I imagine he was planning on just, like, spending the rest of his days there. Uh, I don't think he had big plans for a part three to his life. But part three happened upon him. There was a burning bush, and it told him to do something that it becomes very obvious very early on he does not want to do. This is a responsibility that he does not want to take on, but it's a responsibility that changes his life forever. And again, he appears before a king, and he has to make demands of the most powerful man on earth. Uh, not only is this going to cost him in a lot of ways, this, is, this will transform world history. This will be something that leads to the fall of the, the nation of, of Egypt, and it will be something that uh, he will have to spend the next 40 years of his life wandering aimlessly in a desert because of this call. I, you know, I think he was happy to free the people, but I also have to think that that's not how he wanted his last 40 years to go. Uh, you know, if he got to design it for himself following God, uh, it accomplished great things, and it was a benefit for generations to come, but for his own life, it also made things rather difficult for him. Uh, for his own life, it, it caused some, some real conflict and some heartache and some struggle. But sometimes that's what happens. When Joseph went to Egypt and he stood before the king, he ended up being elevated and things worked out really well. Uh, when Moses went and stood before the king, there were difficulties that came with that, and, and, and there was struggle associated with it, and the last 40 years of his life were pretty tough. So you keep going through the Bible, and you see this type of thing happen. Daniel is someone. Daniel was a youth growing up in, in uh, Judea. He is someone who uh, was apparently probably well-off, good-looking, intelligent, had a lot of potential. And one of the things that the Babylonians would do when they would conquer a city or a nation, is they would look for those types of people. Um, the young, intelligent, good-looking people, because they realize it'd be a waste just to like slaughter this person and leave them on a heap of bodies. What we should do instead is take them and use them. Let's get something out of them. We'll teach them our language. We'll teach them our customs. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll educate them in all the ways of the Babylonians. And maybe now I can have someone who understands the cultures that I'm ruling and someone who could be loyal to me and someone who could be of use to the kingdom. And so Daniel and a number of Daniel's uh, of, you know, kin and, and friends, they're brought to Babylon and they're educated in these ways. Yet, Chapter after chapter of the book of Daniel, 
like new conflicts arise, whether it's about what foods they're going to eat in Babylon. Or this king, he's a ruthless guy, and he has a dream and he wants it interpreted. You know what I do if I have a dream that I ponder the meaning of? I, I think about it for 10 minutes until I forget the dream. You know, it's like, it's like, it's what I don't do is call every person I know and have them tell me the dream. And if they can't do it, I kill them. Uh, that's something a king does. <laughs> like that's, that's something that someone who's been in charge for too long and it's gone to his head. That's what he does with a dream like that. Um, and so that's what he starts doing. And he starts executing all of his wise men. And Daniel finds himself among them. And so Daniel is given this interpretation from God, and he's able to give it to the king. Uh, do you know what I do after I have a dream where I find out maybe I'm, I'm the head of gold in the dream? That's never happened to me, but just, just go with me here. I don't think I should build a massive statue made of gold to myself and have all the people worship it. Uh, that's what I'll do. Well, that's what the king decides to do. So after he has this dream where he finds out, it's a dream about a statue, and the statue is made of different metals, and he finds out that he's the gold uh, head at the top of the statue. And he's like, oh, really? So the next chapter, he says, well, I'll build a huge statue, and I'll make the whole thing out of gold, and everyone is supposed to bow down and worship it. Um, well, Daniel, or, or I guess Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they're not going to do that. And so they end up being thrown into a fiery furnace for not worshiping the king. But it's like they appear before the king, and sometimes it seems that things go well for them. Sometimes it seems that things go really poorly for them. God ends up protecting them through the fiery furnace. And Daniel, for the next kingdom that comes, it's Persia. He ends up thrown in a den of lions. There are all sorts of twists and turns that take place. But what we find is that consistently in each of these circumstances, I don't think they have a clue what is going to happen to them, and yet God is using them to do some pretty great things. Um, sometimes you might be, it like, it's a complete shock, but you might be exactly where God has planned for you to be, even if it's not where you've planned for yourself to be. Uh, and sometimes you might find yourself with opportunities to do things for God that you never thought were within your wheelhouse, that you never thought they were, you know, what you were about. Moses certainly didn't think that he was someone who uh, should be standing up to kings and telling them to let people go. He was a shepherd. He was a fugitive. He apparently doesn't think he was a very good speaker, um, but God was able to use him through all of those doubts and uncertainty, all of that, to do some pretty incredible things. And I think when we get to the last couple chapters of the book of Acts, Paul is going to join in that chorus. Uh, Paul is going to be one of those people throughout the history of Israel, you see them pop up, who their life is radically transformed. God has a really difficult mission and call for them. They find themselves standing before kings, and you really don't know how it's going to go. You don't know whether they're going to be elevated in the kingdom like Joseph or whether they're going to be uh, an attempt is made on their life or thrown into a fiery furnace or, or whatever. And so Paul, he doesn't know what the future holds. I think he has some idea of some ways that God is going to use him because God actually has given him glimpses and visions here and there of different things that God's going to do. But the reality is he doesn't know what's going to happen to him, but he does know what his job is. His job is to, no matter what situation he finds himself in, to be a faithful witness of Jesus. And so that's what he's going to do. And then we'll see what happens from there. 
That's what he's going to do, and we'll see how it all plays out. And the consistency with which Paul does that is truly incredible, uh, especially as you read through uh, Acts chapters, you know, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26. Because what happens is Paul, he goes to Jerusalem. We talked about last week. Paul had to make this trip to Jerusalem. Uh, he was actually going to help out the churches that were in Jerusalem with some funds that he had been raising uh, among Gentile churches. There, there was some struggle in Jerusalem. So he's going there with this really good mission, this really good idea. But along the way, these churches are saying, no, don't go. Like, we, we have prophets here. They're telling us, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound hand and foot. You're going to be arrested. They're going to try to kill you in Jerusalem. It's really dangerous for you there. But Paul is not going to be put off of his mission. And so he goes there anyway. He meets with the church. He even tries to do this act of unity where he goes to the temple to offer sacrifice. Uh, and what happens while he's there is sure enough, what everyone told him was going to happen. He's arrested and he's bound. Um, so that's a, that's a scenario where it was life-changing, but I think Paul might have had a good idea something bad was going to happen there already. Uh, you know, when, when Joseph went out to his brothers, I don't know that he really fully understood what was going to happen. Uh, when Moses went to the burning bush, I don't think he knew he was going to be walking away, having to go make demands of the king. Uh, when you know, I, I could imagine uh, Daniel, knowing that Babylon's, you know, becoming an aggressive nation, he might have known some bad things were going to happen. But here, Paul, he's aware of the danger, but he goes anyway. Sure enough, it happens. And so what you'll see happen in chapter 22, chapter 23, chapter 24, chapter 25, and chapter 26 of Acts, like these chapters all in a row, is Paul in different settings and in different places among different people is going to make defenses of, uh, of himself, of why he's doing what he's doing, uh, of his innocence, and of ultimately what he thinks the true issue is behind his arrest. Um, they claimed to arrest him because they thought he brought Gentiles into the temple. He didn't do that. But Paul also knows that's not really why you arrested me. You know why you arrest me? Because I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, you, you, let's, let's cut through all the nonsense. Uh, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, and I'm living my life proclaiming it, and you don't like that. And you don't like the ramifications of that. You don't like the fact that death is an enemy for all people. And so the resurrection is a, a source of hope for all people, and that includes Jew as well as Gentile, and I'm bringing that hope to all people. That's what you don't like. And so the resurrection is what Paul centers all of this around. In fact, as you read each of those chapters, that's what Paul's going to say. He'll say it over and over again. I'm on trial today, not because of these charges that they're saying. I'm on trial today because of the resurrection. And, uh, and that's what people are going to have to grapple with. And it will be interesting because some of these Roman-appointed rulers that Paul stands before, it's not against Roman law for two Jews to have an argument with each other about the resurrection. Like, that, that's not something. And so he's on trial, and they're thinking he hasn't done anything wrong. You know, he's in, so go work this out among yourselves. But if he does that, they're going to they're gonna kill him. And so what he ends up doing is saying, I appeal to Caesar. I'm going to take it all the way to Caesar. And these Roman governors are, and kings are thinking, how are we going to send him to Caesar to talk about the resurrection? Like, that's not even a that's not even an issue that Romans are thinking about. It's not, an, it's not a crime. And so he keeps standing trial. They're trying to find something that he's done wrong. or It's just it's interesting because Paul is focusing on this issue that is a huge controversy in Jerusalem and that the Romans are just kind of confused about. And he's trying to 
take it all the way to the top so that he can actually preach the resurrection of Jesus to the highest authorities in Rome. And so it's, it's an incredible story of how Paul ends up doing this. He ends up standing before a king and talking about the resurrection of Jesus uh, before he's shipped off to Italy, and that's where the, the book of Acts comes to its conclusion. So in Acts 22, after Paul goes to Jerusalem to offer the sacrifice, he's arrested, and he makes his first speech to the crowds there at the temple. And then they want to kill him. Uh, they start, they're going to beat him. And as they begin to beat him, uh, he says, wait a minute here. Are you really going to beat a Roman citizen? Because the Romans had seen all the kerfuffle, and they had gotten involved, and they were the ones who were actually going to do the beating. And once they realized that, they realized we can't beat you know, a Roman citizen who doesn't have any charges against him. And so he gets the opportunity to speak in front of the Sanhedrin before he has to speak before Roman governors. He goes to the Sanhedrin, and he just starts a conflict uh, among them about the resurrection. That's chapter 23. But one thing that I, I think is, is fascinating about this, kind of like Moses. You remember, Moses was a Jew, but he was raised in Egypt's household. And so he kind of had a connection between both. Paul's going to find himself in a similar situation. Paul is someone who is absolutely a Jew. If you look at Acts chapter 22 and verse 3, this is how he begins his speech uh, to the crowds at the temple. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia and brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel. Like, he begins by saying, look, I'm a Jew. I was brought up in Jerusalem. I, I'm, I'm one of you. Uh, let me explain how I ended up here and you ended up there. And that ultimately is the resurrection of Jesus. But he starts off by saying, I am a Jew. He, he is one of these people. In fact, when you look at chapter 23, at verse 6, the next chapter, this is Paul before the Sanhedrin court. Uh, that's like the Jewish high court. They're going to be able to, to sentence him. And uh, he stands before the court, and notice how he begins in verse 6. He says, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I am on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Uh, so what he starts off by doing is aligning himself with the Pharisees. Notice he does not say also that I was a Pharisee. Present tense, I am a Pharisee. That, that's, that's how he was educated. That's, that's who he is. He is a Jew and he is a Pharisee. And so he's going to be able to connect with the Jewish people at the temple. He's going to be able to connect with the Pharisees. In fact, one thing that's fascinating is you know how often the Pharisees like condemned uh, and critiqued Jesus and didn't like Paul and all of that stuff? As you look, look at verse 9. This is what the Pharisees end up saying after Paul kind of connects with them about the resurrection. He says, There occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. It's like Paul got the Pharisees to say, we find nothing wrong with him. That's pretty incredible. Uh, he did that by relating to the Pharisees, particularly on the resurrection. But something else Paul says Back in chapter 22, as he's about to be beaten, he has said, I am a Jew. He has said, I am a Pharisee. And when you get to Acts chapter 22, in verse 27, a Roman commander comes and says to Paul, tell me, are you a Roman? And he says, yes. And the commander says, well, I acquired my citizenship with a sum of money. Like he, he was wealthy enough to buy Roman citizenship. Paul says, but I was actually born a Roman citizen. So what you end up finding out is Paul's a Jew, Paul's a Pharisee, Paul's also a Roman citizen. Uh, 
that is going to, like Moses, be able to connect him with both Jerusalem and Rome. It's going to connect him to the Jews and to the Romans. It's going to be able to connect him to the people that he is primarily trying to reach as, as a missionary. And not only it had to be like a jaw-dropping moment for this uh, Roman commander because he's about to have the man beaten and then he finds out not only is he a Roman citizen, which that would have gotten the commander in a lot of trouble if he had had Paul beaten there, but he's actually like a legit Roman citizen, a higher ranking Roman citizen than I am. He was, he's a native Roman citizen or, or, or uh, he's someone who was born into it. Like I was able to purchase it along the way, but that's a lower standing than someone who is an authentic Roman citizen. And so Paul is, I think, someone who has been prepared by God I don't think he had any clue he was being prepared by God for this incredible mission that's going to take place. After standing before the Sanhedrin court, Jesus appears to Paul in a vision. And in a chapter 23 and verse 11, it says, On that night, immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said to Paul, Take courage, for you have solemnly witnessed my cause at Jerusalem, so you must also witness at uh, Rome. So what Jesus does is he appears to Paul, gives him courage, and says, up to this point, you've been my witness at Jerusalem, and now you're going to be my witness in Rome. Uh, that's really a big transition in the book. Because up to this point, Paul has been, uh, you know, he was going to Jerusalem and the churches were telling him not to. He went to the temple. He got arrested. He stood before uh, the people at the temple. He stood before the Sanhedrin court. But from this point forward, he's not going to be appearing before Jews in, in Jerusalem any longer. He's going to be appearing before Roman-appointed governors and kings uh, as he ends up making his way to uh, the city of Rome. And that's where the book of Acts is going to end. So this is a big transition verse. Paul first is going to appear before a Roman governor named Felix. And Felix is an interesting guy. Um, Again, he doesn't have any real charges against Paul. He just knows that there was a big argument. Paul was arrested. They were trying to kill him in Jerusalem. Uh, the Romans saved him from that. Uh, but now he's uh, you know, a prisoner that they have, and they don't really know what to do with him. And so Felix is kind of hoping for a bribe. Maybe he'll let Paul go if he gets some money out of it, but he doesn't get any money out of Paul. And so Paul ends up in prison for two years under Felix. Uh, when you look at Acts chapter 24 in verse 26... This is talking about Felix says, at the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often to converse with him. So he talks to Paul quite a bit. And Paul is like preaching some serious messages to Felix during this time. When you look at verse 25, it says that Paul was preaching righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, and Felix had become frightened. Uh, so Paul keeps talking to him about, yeah, the resurrection, the resurrection of the wicked and the, and the unjust, or of the, good, the just and the unjust at the end. He's preaching, and Felix is like wanting to hear from Paul, but then he gets terrified, doesn't want to, but he also wants a bribe. And so he just kind of keeps Paul trapped for two years until, verse 27, after two years passed, Felix was succeeded by Festus. So Festus is the next one who becomes in charge. And Festus has, this is two years later, he knows nothing about Paul. 
He just knows I have this prisoner here, and I don't know anything about him. I don't really care that much about him, so I'll have him you know, tell me what's going on. And Paul ends up talking to him about the resurrection from the dead, and Paul ends up preaching to him. Paul lets him know, chapter 25 and verse 8, he says, I've committed no offense either against the law, like uh, the law of the Jews, or against the temple, or against Caesar. So again, you're combining Jerusalem and Rome here, and he's saying, like, I haven't committed any crimes in any of these places. I'm here because of the resurrection from the dead. And so what Festus decides to do, he says, okay, well then just go back to Jerusalem and let them try you. But Paul doesn't want to do that because they're trying to kill him in Jerusalem. And so Paul instead, because he's a Roman citizen, says, well, then I appeal to have Caesar be my judge. You know, I appeal to Caesar. And Festus is thinking, okay, but how am I going to send you to Caesar if I don't have any charges against you? Uh, so it, when you get to the end of chapter 25, there's a King Agrippa who's introduced now. And King Agrippa, they're hoping maybe he can sort through what to do with Paul. Uh, but what, uh, what Festus ends up telling him, he says in verse, 19, uh, verse uh, 18 of chapter 25, Festus says, When the accusers stood up, they began to bring charges against him of such crimes that I was not expecting, uh, but they simply had some points of disagreement with, about, uh, with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul said was alive. And so, like, even his description of the events, it's like they're having some weird religious disputes they say a guy is dead and Paul says he's alive. That's not a crime. Uh, and so he's trying to figure out something to do uh, to send him to the emperor. Verse 26 of chapter 25, he says, Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, especially you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me uh, in sending a prisoner to Caesar uh, and not to indicate also the charges against him. So it's like, investigate him, find some charges here so that we can send him off to Caesar because that's where he's wanting to go. And so now Paul is going to stand before Agrippa. Uh, this is a fascinating conversation because it's one, again, where Paul is going to recount how he came to be a Christian. Uh, he's also going to describe what his call and mission is. And I want to read that in uh, chapter 26, verses 16 through 18. This is Paul's brief description of what Jesus wants him to do. He's been doing it all along. He's been doing it in, you know, before the group in, uh, by the temple, before the Sanhedrin, before Felix, before Festus, and now before Agrippa. Verse 16, this is after Jesus, uh, this is actually as Jesus is describing what he wants Paul to do. He says, but get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appointed you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things that you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you. Um, that's a fascinating job description right now. When he says, I want you to be a witness of the things you have seen, but also of the things that I'll show you. Imagine agreeing to be a witness to things you have not seen yet. Um, what, the only way you could be a witness to things that you haven't seen yet is if you really, really trust the person who's going to be showing them to you. This whole mission that Paul has of being a witness to future events is a testimony to the faith that he has and the trust that he has in Jesus. So as we go through here, and this is what we've been talking about the whole time, like this plan is not Paul's plan. This plan that is unfolding before him, that he finds himself in these different places, 
This is God's plan, and Paul just finds himself going along with it. And he ends up being a witness in situation after situation after situation that he does not know is going to arise, and he doesn't know what he's going to have to say, and he doesn't know to whom he's going to be appearing. And Jesus is just saying, trust me and follow along. You haven't seen it yet, but you're going to be my witness in all of these different ways. And this is what he's going to do. Jesus, on his end, verse 17, is going to be rescuing Paul. He rescues him uh, from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom he is sending him. So Paul, throughout Acts, they have been trying to kill Paul. Whether they're stoning him in Lystra or whether there's a conspiracy uh, among the Jews in Jerusalem to have him killed. Like, Paul has had attempts on his life over and over again, yet he's consistently been rescued from them because Jesus needs him for a mission. That mission is described in verse 18, and I think that it's an important mission for us to consider, especially uh, as we leave this place, as we go into our workplace, as we find ourselves somewhere on the plan of God, not knowing where it is or what will lie before us. What do we do as we go? What do we do where we are sent? What do we do at the workplace? What do we do among our neighbors? What Paul is to do in verse 18 is to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by me. Jesus says, I want you to open their eyes. I want them to be able to see the world in a brand new way. I want them to step out of darkness and into light, out of the dominion of Satan and into the kingdom of God. Um, that's language that pops up quite a bit in the New Testament, but I think it's such powerful imagery to describe what turning to Christ is. You are leaving one master behind and you're coming to a new master. That previous master had left you in darkness. You may have seen the world, but you didn't see the world the way Christ was. Just like Paul, when he, remember Paul went blind and he had to have his eyes opened to be able to see for the first time truly, uh, that's what he's saying his whole missionary experience is, is opening the eyes of people to see the reality of the kingdom of God before them. And when that does happen, there is forgiveness of sins, which takes place. The forgiveness of all things you've done and the things that you do throughout your life, you have God on your side through them. You have an inheritance that is a part of that. So on the one hand, you're kind of looking at all the things you've done have been forgiven. You also look to the future. There's an inheritance. And along the way, you are among those who have been sanctified by faith. You have a community to walk with you among, along the way. You join into the people of God. And Paul is saying that's the message, that it doesn't matter whether I'm speaking to a Jew or to a Roman, to someone who's rich or someone who's poor, to someone who is a peasant or to someone who is a king. I don't know exactly where God is taking me. I don't know where I'm going to find myself tomorrow. I don't know what my future holds. But this I do know, that I have a message that can transform the world and that can transform you, even King Agrippa. King Agrippa is uh, kind of amazed that Paul is turning this defense into an evangelistic opportunity, uh, trying to actually reach uh, King Agrippa. And King Agrippa... Um, responds, uh, his response can be taken a number of ways, but in verse 28, there's an interesting uh, phrase from King Agrippa. He says, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. At least that's what my translation says. Uh, some translations, the phrase in a short time, it translates as almost. And 
one other thing that's kind of confusing sometimes about Greek is a sentence that is a question and a sentence that is um, just a statement, they're worded the same way. So context is how you know whether or not a question is being asked. So some translations kind of ask this as a question, in such a short time, do you think you're going to make me a Christian? Like, come on, Paul, get real. Others translate it as like, Paul, you've almost persuaded me to become a Christian. Mine translates it as, in a short time, you're going to persuade me to be a Christian? And you can take it either as kind of sarcasm or serious. And it's difficult uh, to know for certain the best way to translate it. But I do think the idea of it is something that as we draw our lesson to a close, perhaps every one of us here should consider. If you find yourself longing for something more than what you have, if you find yourself uh, looking at the world around you and seeing so much darkness and knowing that you want to be part of the light, if you find yourself uh, almost there desiring to become a Christian but you haven't yet made that step, you can make that step here today. We would love to help you with that step right now. You can ask questions and we can study further with you. Uh, if there's anything you want to talk about or if you want to name Jesus as Lord of your life and have your sins washed away in baptism or receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ, you have that opportunity right now. And if we can help you do it, please come sit on the front row or meet with one of our elders in the back while we stand and as we sing.